This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 55. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham. Uh, giving you the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, the strategy, people, process, and technology sides of change. Uh, Kyler, thanks for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. You can find new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn, as well as all the audio podcast platforms. So be sure to check us out, subscribe to our podcast and or YouTube channels to uh, get updates on this podcast, as well as other content that we put out daily. Um, We've got an exciting show for you today. We're going to cover really a packed show, a lot of different topics Um, We're going to talk about uh, some research that you've uncovered, uh, Kyler, related to uh, digital transformation strategies at the executive level, um, as far as leading culture, the business climate in general, uh, agility, as well as uh, even the Olympics, you're going to you're going to cover there as well. So that uh, should be some good hot topics we'll we'll do in the opening segment here. So that'll be some interesting stuff. I'm excited to hear what you have to say about some of that stuff. And I have no idea what you're going to say about it. So we'll kind of learn together on the on that front here. And then uh, we're our, our main guest here today, or our first guest on the show, I should say, is uh, Tim Creasy, who's the Chief Innovation Officer for ProSci. And I'm really excited to have him on the show. I've been trying to get him uh, on the show now for, for some time. So we finally were able to get him on our podcast, and he's a really good thought leader uh, in the ch- change management and transformation space. Um, if you're not familiar with ProSci, its training program and its certification, uh, it's really you know sort of a gold standard for, for getting certified and getting trained and brushed up on what change is and how to affect change within an organization. And he's the chief, chief innovation, innovation officer who's at the forefront of their training programs and their research and whatnot. So I thought, what better person to have on the show to talk about some emerging trends in change management. So Tim will be on the show talking about the future of organizational change management. So we'll kind of look at where we're at today and what's changing in the world of change and change management. And uh, really excited for that conversation. Should be a great one. And then we'll also have Adam Cheatham on the show, who's a director of strategy and transformation at Third Stage Consulting. He'll be on the show talking about um, system and technology integration and some of the considerations to, to keep in mind there. So those are the uh, exciting topics we've got for you today. But before we get to our guests, what are some of these uh, what's some, what are some of these hot topics in the research that you've uncovered here that we're that I was talking about at the beginning of the episode? Yeah, definitely. Um, so PwC recently did. Uh, an overall survey of executives that found that 70% of business leaders actually believe that um, COVID-19 will, um, the COVID-19 pandemic, excuse me, will actually lead to forced transformations, which we already kind of knew. Um, But the fact is 60% of say digital transformations will be their most critical growth driver in 2022. And I kind of wanted to share what their growth strategies were just to get some of your reactions if that's kind of what you've seen from client conversations or within the your network marketplace as well 
So their number one strategy is prioritizing operating model, cloud, and data in 2022. Um, and the number one actual tactic is redefining IT strategy and operating model to be more agile. So I wanted to get your reaction to that, to think about, you know, we're a lot of piece, people and organizations aren't going back to a traditional quote unquote work environment and having to migrate from maybe an on-premise option due to more hybrid work and um, migrating to a cloud solution. Is that something that you've seen as far as agility? Is that what you would define as agility as, as you know, kind of moving to that cloud model? Yeah, it is. It, and, and you're, you're sort of getting it, um, you'll call it the base level of, of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, as it relates to agility. And that is, you have a pandemic, global pandemic, you're forced to have a certain amount of people that are working remotely for a certain amount of time. And that sort of exposes the limitations of your on-prem systems. And therefore, you, you, you have to move off the on-premise solutions into the cloud in many cases. But if you sort of take it up the hierarchy of needs and think more strategically about, well, what else could we, how else could we be enabling the sort of agility, flexibility uh, within the cloud? Then you start thinking about supply chain issues that, that organizations are having right now and how the, how the cloud can help enable better visibility, better analytics into the supply chain. And then you work your way even further up and realize that, you know, there's uh, Internet of Things and um, Industry 4.0, manufacturing and shop floor automation, that you're, ca you're capturing and collecting all this data on the shop floor and even with your customers through e-commerce and whatnot. You have all these different data sources that in it, that you don't know what to do with the data. You're not able to do anything with the data with your on-premise -pre systems. But by using the cloud, you're going to be able to uh, deploy different uses for that technology um, in, in that data and being able to sort of tie that all together. So I think what you're highlighting is that COVID sort of disrupted and uh, underscored the need for change. But now organizations are realizing, okay, we know we need to change. Now what else can we get out of this overall transformation? And that's, you know, those second two buckets that I was talking about. Absolutely. And, and so do you feel like the, the cloud is always kind of the best solution for a company that is going to kind of revise their target operating model, if you will, to focus on remote work? Does that always mean that the cloud is the best option for them? Not always. I mean, it's it's commonly uh, the best option. I think the key is uh, understanding the different nuances of cloud, um, understanding that, you know, you have hybrid models that, you know, allow you to have sort of an on-premise feel to your technology, but you can have someone else host it and manage the infrastructure and whatnot. So in other words, cloud doesn't necessarily need to mean, you know, multi-tenant SaaS-based solutions that are less flexible and less agile than, than some cloud solutions. Um, it, at least in terms of changing workflows and changing functionality, it still addresses some of the agility of reporting and analytics and data integration that, that I mentioned. And I know Adam will be on later talking about integration and system integration as well. So the cloud does enable that, um, I'd say, in a more standard or an easier way. Um, so, you know, I, I just think, again, it's it's just like any trend or buzzword in the industry, you really just, you know, you want to be aware of it, mindful of the fact that most organizations are going to the cloud, most vendors are going to the cloud. doesn't mean you should, but you may want to. And if, if for some reason you find that there's some sort of core competitive advantage that you're just not going to get in the cloud, and that the only way you're going to get that or retain that is with on-premise solutions, then by all means, stick to your on-premise solutions. No one's forcing you 
to go to the cloud. The vendors are trying to. Um, the industry is trying to get you to change. They're trying to force you to. doesn't mean you should, though, necessarily, although I, I would say that most organizations are sort of gravitating in that direction. Absolutely. And it, it sounds like, you know, it's not an all or nothing thing. You know, there are some hybrid options for companies that may not be ready to go, you know, the full software as a subscription option. Um, but there there are options that which which is a main you know thesis of our conversations all the time is it really should be based on the needs of the organization not what the vendor kind of wants to put you in a certain bucket um type of thing so i think that's interesting yeah. Yeah. Uh, that feedback for sure so in, in especially if you think about, about um organizations that have operations that are uh, in remote locations or uh, they they don't have reliable infrastructure and we deal with a lot of multinational clients in you know Africa and parts of Europe and the Middle East and Latin America even North America where there's rural areas with with infrastructural limitations so I think having uh, recognizing that there's there's a downside risk of being in the cloud when you have those sort of operations that's something else you have to consider as well certainly absolutely um, and and speaking of kind of business strategies for 2022, um, I found another research report that looked at all of the different evolutions of change management or basically organizational structure and how businesses can transition most effectively. And I wanted to read you a quote from this study. Um, specifically, it says, traditionally change management involves selling the change to the employees who will be affected by it. In 2022, that is the wrong way around. Your people need to be active participants in designing the change needed. And I thought that was interesting because a lot of times we don't think about people as the decision makers. We think about the executives make the decision or whomever the department head is, that there needs to be a new technology or process or, or what, what have you. Um, and then the people might be involved in designing what exactly that process looks like, but they're not the main decision makers there. And this study is um, is really saying that that's really how they they should be viewed at this point as as kind of the employee business leader relationship. Yeah. And I think, you know, I have kind of a mixed reaction to that. I think on, on one hand, I think that that's in some ways the way it should have always been. I mean, it, it, the pandemic itself, the fact that we're in the 2020s doesn't really change that. I mean, I, I you could have said the same thing 20 years ago and it would have been true that you want to involve people in the decision-making and making them part of the process. And that buy-in and ownership more than anything is going to get people excited and, and get, get you past some of that resistance to change and change barriers that most organizations face. On the other hand, you, there is such a thing as taking that concept too far to where uh, the people on the front lines that you're trying to include in the process uh, maybe flying blind or shooting in the dark if they don't have a clear direction from leadership on what the organization is trying to do strategically um, and how this transformation is meant to enable that strategic direction. So it's it's sort of a, a mix. You need that buy-in that you're talking about. You've always needed it. It's just, okay, I guess you, got, you have more of an excuse to, to need it now that we're in a, sort of a not survival mode, but you know we've gone through a big crisis. A lot of organizations have gone through crisis and now we're sort of rallying the troops to get them more involved in, in solving the problem. But on the other hand, you still need that. There's there's no substitute for that um, 
that, that clear strategic direction, that clear vision, the clear goals and objectives in the way this transformation is going to support that. And that sort of gives you the guardrails or the parameters that then, yes, you can go do the things you just mentioned, which is then you get people bought into owning and making decisions, but it has to fit within that direction. You don't want them going off in a totally different direction because that misalignment uh, will completely undercut and undermine the benefit of getting that buy-in uh, of getting people involved. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that is a great point of, you know, at some point there has to be that executive alignment and direction. Um, and hopefully, you know, that change or at least that feedback for change has been surfaced throughout the organization from the front lines to being, you know, received by the executive team. So that's a, a great point. Um, another piece of this study that I wanted to share that I found interesting was the idea of this nudge technology that changes behavior and workflow. So we have these these new technologies or newer like Cultivate, CultureAmp, ChangeQ, Microsoft Viva, and base Workday Everywhere, which we know Workday well, obviously in Microsoft. And they make these small behavior changes easy and in turn have a really big impact on say end user adoption or changing in a more positive way. Um, and I, I wanted to get your just feedback on kind of that intelligent software that can pick up employee or workforce behavior signals. Yeah, in what way, in what kind of signals? Are you talking about like Slack and things like that that'll pick up those signals? Or are you talking about the, the other ones you just mentioned? Um, they These ones I think are a bit different than Slack. They provide kind of ongoing feedback um, regarding the flow of work. So are they reflecting oh. company values? You know. Um, how are they managing their time effectively? So it's it's almost kind of like I would call it a watchdog software, not that harsh, right? But but almost helping employees optimize how they go about their I know, big brother, how they go about their overall workflow and then giving them positive opportunities to change, thus having a big impact on the efficiency of the overall organization. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm not familiar with that sort of technology. Um, it, it's amazing to me how many different technologies are out there to address all these different components of change and process improvement, all that stuff. And that's that's an that's an area that's new to me. So, like much of the audience, I'm learning learning with you here. So, um, it's, it's certainly fascinating. I could see a, a definite role for that that type of technology for sure. Absolutely, and and kind of transitioning to another research study. You know, I've just been studying all all week long for our audience here by. OZ Tanner Institute um, kind of talks about what is needed for a culture change and how our current labor shortage is really affecting business culture. So, for example, um, companies that experience layoffs or furloughs in um, with throughout the pandemic experienced a 91 percent de decrease in net promoter score, um, 57 increase in dis. 57% increase in disengagement, excuse me, and a 42% increase in tense workplace atmosphere. Um, so 75% of those polled within these specific companies felt as though the organization was unprepared. So we, we see kind of this huge number of almost dissatisfied employees in this great resignation uh, type of climate that we're in right now. So how can businesses that had to go through this unfortunate furloughing or um, 
you know, let go layoff process because of, you know, the current business climate, whether they experience, you know, a huge decrease in sales, how, how can they build up that culture again with their exist, existing workforce and create more trust in your opinion? Well, you know, I think, uh, I know this is not a popular comment and it, it's, uh, it sort of runs counter to where a lot of the world is right now, but I do think that we sort of have overcorrected a bit, um, partly because we've had to, uh, based on government regulations and people's uh, health concerns and whatnot. But we, I think we've overcorrected and gone too far down the path of remote um, collaboration. And, you know, for example, you know, having Microsoft Teams meetings and Zoom meetings rather than in-person meetings. Now, on one hand, we've proven that we can collaborate. We can be effective remotely. We don't necessarily need to all be in the same room. We don't, you know, for a multinational organization, we don't all need to fly to different countries to meet, you know, to have that same level of effectiveness. But when we do that uh, as a mutually exclusive solution without peppering in that human interaction, that in-person human interaction, you do lose a lot and you lose a lot of cultural um, aspects and nuances of your organization. In fact, that's something that I've struggled with as a leader with Third Stage is because we we are so collaborative as an organization and culture is so important to me personally that during the pandemic, when when we let our office lease, lease lapse, for example, we went about a year without an office and we worked entirely remotely. We tried to get together every so often, but you know, it, it's hard because there are there are always going to be a subset of people that are that are still concerned about health and safety, and maybe they're always going to be concerned about health and safety. There's a certain subset of people that believe strongly in this whole remote work model, but to build a strong culture and to create that stickiness and that engagement and that feeling of belonging, I don't, I really don't think you can do that solely with remote technologies and remote collaboration. So. I think that's a, that's one thing that is controversial is I'd say, you know, challenge yourselves to be in person, you know, if you can, especially now that uh, governments throughout the world are easing up in many parts of the world, they've already eased up. And, you know, we deal with a lot of clients throughout the world, including in the United States, where I'd say it's a, been a little bit more aggressive, perhaps, uh, on the, the limitations, but certainly not as aggressive as other parts of the world. But there are certain parts of the world where a year ago, they were already back to sort of back to normal collaboration and you know, the the waves of uh, COVID, of the pandemic sort of came and went and they sort of stuck with it. Um, not saying that's right or wrong, but I, I think that more organizations need to think that way. I don't think we need to go back to eight to five Monday through Friday in the office, but it's okay to have some sort of a hybrid. And uh, I think you, as a leader in an organization, you sort of need to push for that. And that's what's going to create that culture of engagement and stickiness and belonging uh, within an organization. That's really interesting. Yeah, we, we, um, Adam and I, Adam, my husband, who works at Third Stage as well, were in the office yesterday. And as we were leaving, we we are totally opposites when it comes to introvert versus extrovert. And I'm like, that was so fun. I love talking to everyone. He's like, I like seeing everyone, but man, that's way too much socialization for me. <laughs> so I think, <laughs> that's actually I think how I am deep down too. I'm, I'm an introvert yeah. too, but I but I know I have to I have to overcome that or work past that, you know, in the name of building that culture and building that engagement yeah. with, with employees. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, my, my last hot topic is kind of a fun one talking about um, the high tech of the Olympics. Um, and it, it kind of made me laugh because Adam's birthday was a few weeks ago and we went um, to stay at a hotel and we couldn't figure out how to work the high tech elevators. <laughs> So it, it made me um, kind of, we don't get out much. We have young kids. Um, and so the elevator, you had to scan the key and push where you were going before you got into the elevator. 
And then the elevator would just take you up to the floor and we got lost multiple times. So I was kind of laughing about these, these new technologies at the Beijing Olympics, just because they are very innovative and people are kind of like, whoa, you know, a lot of it is because of the risk of COVID, especially in that area. Um, so for example, journalists, they're in the bubble, right? But they can't talk to any of the athletes or interact with them. So they have a ton of downtime. So what the Olympic Association has done is put these sleeping pods in everywhere around the bubble. And so basically it's a, a, a very interesting innovation that is a, a box that you can go in and have a zero gravity sleep experience. So you can kind of, uh, I, I guess since you have nothing to do, you'll just be you know sleeping all over the place. But there, if I can explain it in a podcast format, it's a clear wall. So if you were walking by, you know, you could easily see someone just sleeping in there or whatever they're doing in there. Um, and so it's it's an interesting design, but it's all innovated to make sure that you get the, the best sleep. And again, as a, a mom to two toddlers, that just really sounds like a vacation to me. It's not magical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but some other innovations they've done is just um, the trains model that only the athletes and and the journalists can get on the trains, the coaches and those, those types of things. Um, so lots of emerging technologies when it comes to using AI for anyone that makes your food is a robot. Um, and say you're at you know the, the hotel bar, they're a robot too. So it's, it's very interesting um, in the fact that they've kind of activated a lot of these no contact technologies that we've been talking about um, within the industry and are kind of piloting those at at the Olympic Games. That's interesting. It, I, I hadn't heard of most of that technology other than the uh, the part where you swipe the elevator key to you know, go up the well, elevator. Well, I'm glad you've heard of that because we obviously did not. <laughs> <laughs> well, just wait till your kids are older, by the way. I mean, your, your kids are pretty young. You know, yeah. when your kids are like my kids' age or they're 12 and 15, mm -hmm. you're just completely over your head with technology and they know everything about technology and it's pretty fascinating how quickly they learn. So enjoy it while you can to where you, you yes. for the most part, you know a little bit more than your kids because uh, eventually that'll go away. Um, but uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty interesting. I, I hadn't uh, been aware of that, but it's, it's just a good reminder. I, one of the questions you asked me, I think last week or maybe two weeks ago in this, in this podcast was uh, you know, how, how much do you think technology will permeate our lives? And you sort of answer that question in another way by showing, by giving these examples of ways that, you know, a lot of us have never thought of before. Right, right. Well, I think, you know, it's a, a great segue into um, Tim and your interview with him and how, you know, we really need to kind of humanize these innovations. They are very cool, right? But we have to also remember the human nature and just the overall human experience. So this is one of my favorite live streams that you've ever done. Um, obviously our audience loved it too. And again, as I said last week, if you haven't joined live, one of the live streams on Tuesday mornings um, that Eric does on all of his social channels. It's so interesting to hear the audience feedback um, and fun to be involved in that. So I, I highly recommend joining live if you're able to at some point. Yeah, yeah, they're fun to do and you get you get a lot of good audience participation questions. And he's uh, he's very active in social media and he's very well respected in the industry too. He's sort of a, um, I don't want to call him a god, but he's sort of a guru, uh, you know, uh, certainly a leader within the, the space and in the company itself, you know, ProSci as an organization is really uh, groundbreaking in that they've brought they've they've helped bring a lot of attention 
in underscoring the need for change. And not only that, but they've also created a framework and in sort of training and empowering consultants and also organizations themselves to to manage change in a, in a structured way. So it becomes a little bit less of a nebulous, touchy-feely thing and becomes more of a structured, pragmatic sort of a thing. And that's what I really like about it is it's, uh, you know, we'll talk about this, but uh, it's, it's uh, it was created by an engineer. An engineer founded the company, which is pretty interesting to me. So um, it, it has certainly the soft side of change management, but it's got that engineering rigor that's been added to it, which uh, will be fascinating. And he is, uh, I've talked to Tim before on multiple occasions, and he's uh, their chief, chief, Innova- chief innovation officer. And he's also very, I'd say he's very logical. You know, he, he's a, uh, compared to most change people, he, he's got this very logical side to him. And he certainly infuses the, uh, call it the, the intangible or the soft side of change in that as well. But uh, it'd be fascinating to have him on the show here finally uh, after uh, many attempts. And uh, we'll, get, we'll get him here as soon as we take a quick break. We'll be right back with Tim Creasy, who is the chief innovation officer of ProSci. So we'll be right back after a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 55. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and you can find new episodes of this podcast every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can also find us on all of the audio podcast platforms. So if you're listening on Spotify, Google, Amazon, Apple, wherever you're listening, be sure to check us out, subscribe, leave us a review, um, share it with your friends, all that good stuff. And uh, this, as I mentioned before, is the podcast that covers everything related to digital transformation, strategy, and change. Uh, and speaking of change, I'm excited for our next guest, who is Tim Creasy, Chief Innovation Officer of ProSci. And uh, rather than tell you what ProSci is, rather than tell you what Tim does, I'm going to ask him himself and let him say it in his own words. So with all that being said, Tim, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric. Uh, excited for the opportunity and uh, enjoy the live stream nature of it. Yeah, absolutely. It'd be cool to get people's uh, questions here. Um, in fact, we already have uh, a few people mentioning where they're from today. One who is on a treadmill in Boston. So uh, uh, Robert, nice. Robert on LinkedIn is watching on a treadmill in Boston. So uh, good to have the, the audience here today. Um, so I guess I actually just... got to live in Boston from 2003 to 2005, uh, which were two fantastic years to get to live in Boston for sure. Yeah, why it was something to do with the Patriots or uh, the Red Sox, Patriots, oh. Red Sox, Patriots. It was a uh crazy couple of years for sure yeah yeah and now it comes full circle with tom brady retiring and uh yeah. i'm sure that place in your heart having having lived there for some time 
Oh, no, I was born and raised in Colorado. So the three most important teams to me are the Denver Broncos, the Denver Broncos and the Denver Broncos. So I don't mind seeing the greatest of all time right off into the sunset. So. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's, it's hard to be a Broncos fan and a, and a Tom Brady fan at the same time. And you, <laughs> yeah, definitely not. You and I are both from Colorado. Um, so we, we share that connection as well. And it's, it's funny how, what a small world this is. Uh, we're both in the world of change and business transformation and things like that. But yet we're both from Colorado, too. So that's a, a good coincidence. Um, so just to start, maybe um, maybe if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and also about ProSci for people that don't know what ProSci is. Uh, maybe you could describe both yourself and the organization, if you don't mind. Yeah, most certainly. So I'm Tim Creasy, Chief Innovation Officer at ProSci. I'll start with ProSci. Uh, it's an organization who's dedicated to help individuals and organizations build their own change capability so they can deliver deliver more successful change outcomes. Really based in this notion that every change has a technical side and a people side. And we usually do a tremendous job investing time and energy and effort in the technical side, and we leave the people side to chance. Uh, and so ProSci as an organization has built out a discipline, tool set, methodology, training suite to help organizations conquer the challenges of change uh, through the people that make up the organization. Uh, so that's ProSci. Uh, we serve the change practitioner community, certainly, which I think would be a lot of the folks, you know, that uh, come to your podcast. But we also go deep into organizations, realizing that leaders have a role in driving successful change. People managers have a role in driving successful change. Uh, we need project teams to speak the language of adoption and usage. Uh, so that's the way we support our clients as they grow kind of institutional organizational muscle and change. And then, yeah, I'm the chief innovation officer. So I just celebrated 21 years with the firm about a week ago. Uh, and I kind of steer the uh, innovation, uh, really getting out in front of the community to talk about uh, that the challenges of change are unlockable with and through our people. Uh, I kind of have a funny role, Eric, right? Uh, both in terms of really diving into the discipline, really taking something like the change practitioner competency model and really blowing it out as a way for practitioners to develop themselves. And I go speak at conferences where the audience has never even heard the phrase change management, uh, just to help bring that mindset shift that successful change requires our people. And there's things that we can do about it to support our people through the change journeys that we ask them to take. So uh, I kind of play on both of those ends in this role as the chief innovation officer. It's been a wild journey, right? Uh, I was employee nine, uh, and then we shrunk to about three. Uh, and now we have a division uh, that's called RPM that runs research, product, and marketing. And so mm. to have a whole group of folks that are steering uh, that part of the organization, it's really freed me up to get to do things like these podcasts. So. Yeah, and really get the the message out there about something that's so important. It's such an important discipline. and. You know, ProSci fascinates me because, you know, when I started off doing change management consulting back in the late 90s, there wasn't any formal training program. I mean, you had like Cotter and, you know, some of the thought leaders in the change management space that had, you know, more of that academic thought leadership. But as far as like a certified program that you can get certified in, in this discipline, it, it didn't really exist before. Yeah. Yeah, we were founded by Jeff Hyatt. He was an engineer. And I, you know, say the way ProSci got founded was an insatiably curious engineer started asking the question, why do some projects succeed and others not? Interesting. I mean, that, that was the crux of the question. Uh, 
the very first big detractor that he found when he started to really investigate that question was failing to get the adoption and usage we need of the solution from the people who, it's not that the buttons didn't work, it's that we didn't help our people bring that solution to life in the way they do their day-to-day -day jobs. And so that was over 25 years ago, right? Uh, that this curious engineer spots the people side of change as the challenge he wants to investigate and help others unlock um, through actionable, practical, accessible methodologies and tools. And so, yeah, that was kind of the genesis, but you're right in the early 90s, uh, late 90s, right? It's starting to hit the business lexicon. We've moved out of just kind of trying to better understand people and how human beings move through change. Uh, and people like Todd Jick and Cotter and Connor and uh, even Spencer Johnson at the end of the 90s really started to put the people side of change onto the lexicon, right? That it's something we need to be bringing intentionality to if we want to achieve the results and outcomes of the, the changes we're investing in. And that's really where ProSci stepped in to really bring the research to the table and say, can we work with practitioners to understand what worked, what didn't, and what you would do differently next time? And they really start to build out the breadth and depth of this discipline that we call change management over the last 20 years. Interesting. I mean, it's interesting. I had no idea that it was an engineer that founded ProSci, which I find fascinating because I think that's one of the problems with change management or historically had been one of the problems is it's so touchy-feely. It's sort of this vague, nebulous term. But you add that engineering discipline with more of a structured approach, that that seems to be what ProSci is. So it makes sense that an engineer started it. I just didn't know that's how the origin was. And I think that's why people got drawn to it, right, Eric? Because it threaded the needle between a systemic mechanical approach in view of the organization uh, that, that the engineer has with business psychology, uh, sociology, anthropology, all of the human components, because we know our organizations are made up with human beings. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's a unique blend of intention, structured intentionality around the human side of our organizations. Gotcha. Well, I'd be curious to hear from the audience while we're getting going here on that conversation. How many of you have heard of ProSci and how many of you maybe have taken a ProSci course or maybe some of you are ProSci certified? I'd love to hear just in the audience um, if we've got any ProSci certified practitioners or at least people that have heard of it or are somewhat familiar with it. And certainly if you're not familiar with it, that's exactly why we have Tim on the show. So that's no problem either. Um, you, want to, so, you want to hear one other little bit of backstory about the certification? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, 2001 is when we did that first. That's when I joined the firm. Uh, we build and release the first methodology uh, as a toolkit because Jeff envisioned ProSci as a product organization, books and binders, right? Like this is the very first ProSci research report. You know, there's two of them that we know are in existence. It's 30 pages long. The current one's like four and a half pounds. Um, but he really envisioned the organization being a product organization selling books and binders that captured what we were learning about the people side of change. But people kept coming to us and saying, we need somebody, we need you to train us in this. We need you to train us in this. And so I kept hammering on him and he came back and set the bar. And I think kudos to Jeff. I think this was a nugget of ProSci success. He said, we are not going to build a three-day training program. We're going to build a transformational experience that empowers people to feel like they can tackle a challenge that they never thought they could tackle before. It's not three days of lecture. It's a three-day transformational empowering experience. And if you can design to that, then we'll step into this training space. And this was back in 03, 04. Um, 
And people who attended those early programs remember the days of chili cook-offs and karaoke up at a dude ranch out, you know, in the mountains of Colorado. Um, but it was around that mindset and tool set shift that was coming from seeing the people side of change as something we could navigate and, and manage. Interesting. That's super interesting. I, I had no idea about the origins. In fact, when you and I first started talking about this interview, um, I thought you started uh, ProSide just because your name has been so prominent and attached to it for so long. And, and you started out of college. Is that right? Weren't you just out of college or something when you when you started there? Yeah, I joined up with ProSci. I was uh, going to go do a PhD in comparative economics because uh, my background's in political science and economics. And uh, my partner at the time, now wife and uh, mother of my children, was getting a teaching degree. Uh, and so I needed to find something to do in northern Colorado for about a year and a half uh, until I went and did my that PhD. And so sure enough, stepped into ProSci uh, uh, and became fascinated with what I call the micro micro microeconomics. Right. If macroeconomics is how the, the economy is working and microeconomics is how a firm makes decisions. What really fascinates me is how Andy, Becky, Charlie, Debbie, Eric, how, what makes individuals tick? What makes them navigate and make the decisions that they make? And so micro microeconomics is kind of the academic lens I've kind of layered onto some of the learning that we've been doing for a couple of decades. Interesting. That's very cool. All right. Thank you, Tim. We're going to take a quick break. I've got a lot more questions for you, as does the audience. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here in the middle of a conversation with Tim Creasy from ProSci talking about the future of change management. Let's cut back to the conversation. Well, just to kind of turn into the audience here, um, just some, where some some of the people are joining from today, we've got Justin from Pittsburgh. That, thanks for being here, Justin. Uh, Robert is the one on LinkedIn who's who's watching on a treadmill, which is great multitasking. Um, talking about leading change, you've got to be able to, to multitask, and uh, that's a good uh, demonstration of it there. Um, Dubai, we've got a, a couple people from Denver. Um, so thanks for being here. We've got Ukraine. Um, I won't I won't show and list them all, but there's there's a global audience here. I, I know we've got Dubai in here as well. Um, Ghana, Spokane, Washington, UAE again, um, as well as another one from Denver and, and Africa as well. So um, thanks for being here today. And in fact, um, it, one of the uh, just kind of a, a interesting comment that just came up here uh, on LinkedIn is just you can't lead big changes without ProSci. Um, and that's a, that's a great uh, testimony for someone who, by the way, also answered that they are certified in ProSci. Um, so I guess, you know, maybe just to start, um, 
you know, when you when you look at the ProSci program and, and you guys deal with these organizations all over the world, um, and, and by the way, before I get into this question, and this relates to a, a comment here that's on uh, LinkedIn, um, you guys are a global, you offer this on a global scale, right? As far as the training, um, we've got a comment here that ProSci needs to step into Africa, but I, I believe you can get certified from Africa. Can you, can you not? Yeah, ProSci has, uh, again, uh, humble beginnings, right? In a small warehouse in Northern Colorado, uh, is kind of where I started. We now have a physical footprint uh, in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the Caribbean, uh, Latin America, and Spain and Portugal. Uh, but there is an affiliate network around the entire globe where you can access ProSci training programs. So within Africa, we have several partners. Uh, and if you Google ProSci Global Partner Network, uh, you'll track down information about uh, Cedar and uh, and change uh, our friends that are down that way. Great, great. So I guess just to jump into here um, about you know the the problem statement that that you guys are trying to solve with with ProSci, and that is that the change is hard in general. Or if it, if this was easy, you and I probably wouldn't be in business. Quite frankly, you and I would probably be doing you'd be in economics, and I don't know what I'd be doing, but it wouldn't be this probably. So so change is hard. Organizations struggle with it. Why why is that? You guys, you've seen so many organizations. You've certified so many people that are thirsting for, for learning about change, but why is it such a difficult discipline? Well, I think it gets back to that notion. And I've been talking about the two sides of the change coin, right? That there's a technical side of every change where we design, develop, and deliver a solution that meets the need, the issue, the opportunity in front of us. You do a lot of work with your clients doing ERPs, right? That's one flavor of technical solution. CRMs would be electronic health records in a hospital, merger, acquisition. Even a new value system is a technical side of a change, right? Mm. The people side of the change is how do we get people to embrace, adopt, and use whatever that solution is. And although in this change discipline, if you've been a practitioner and you hear it called the soft side of change, you know, it just makes your skin crawl, right? Um, because I think the reason it's hard, Eric, is that this is the harder side of change. The technical side of change can be incredibly complex. Merging two big organizations, absolutely. There's technical complexity in terms of pulling this financial systems together, branding, blah, blah, blah. The real hard side of the change is getting people to step into this new way of working. It's mm. helping individuals navigate, step out of where they are today, step through whatever that transition, the liminal movement is going to be, and step into um, that new way of being. And so I... I think the reason it's hard is because the people side of change is the harder side of change. Now, historically, in a value system where your employees were incented for just, you know, asking how high when you told them to jump, you know, predictability, consistency, that was the value system historically. Um, change was easier then because the values aligned with what asking somebody to do something different. But new value systems over the last 20 years, the emergence of, you know, the, the interaction economy out of the service and knowledge economy, uh, these things have all amplified the people side of change as something that we cannot just leave up to giving the right uh, commands, but it's really around helping people navigate, uh, navigate that journey. And I know we're going to end up talking about the pandemic too, but the pandemic just amplified. It made the people side of change impossible to ignore. If you were one of those organizations or projects that did ignore it and leave the people side of chance, change to chance, you know, historically. Yeah. Now, because we have a global audience, I, it might be worth asking, you know, a lot of those dynamics you just yeah. described as far as the difficulty of changing and, and um, 
you know, the, the fact that in the past, maybe you could say jump and people just say how high, and that's not so much the case in today's uh, organizational cultures. Do you see differences in different parts of the world or just differing organizational cultures and how these pro side concepts are applied or how they navigate change in general, or, or how does that affect, you know, either a global culture and or an organizational culture? How does that affect, you know, your, your change journey? Yeah, I think you're spot on because I think culture is critically important. Um, I do get a little bit provocative here. I'll say that uh, culture is never the villain when a change fails and it's never the hero when a change succeeds. Uh, we're big, big Marvel fans at our house, right? So uh, culture is neither Thanos nor, nor Captain America. Um, culture is. It, it's the water in which we're swimming. Uh, and so I think great change practitioners, it's their job to understand, adapt, and adjust to the culture into which they're bringing to life this particular change. So I guess kind of that's my first bent. I do think culture, certainly we get geographic variation in culture, but inside of organizations, we also get tremendous variation of culture um, just because of the, you know, the values, behaviors, beliefs, we unpacked this with research. You know, this is kind of an interesting full circle notion of, of kind of the story of ProSci, where we have a, a, an attunement to the market, uh, a neat, an, an understanding that change at agents would like to better understand the culture they're stepping into and how it impacts the change journey they're about to attempt to navigate. And so we looked at a number of the different uh, studies, the work that was done on organizational cultures and came up with six cultural dimensions that impact how change comes to life. Because um, my other beef on the culture equation is that any of this kind of value laden, like good good culture, bad culture, uh, culture is. And if it's not aligned with what you're trying to achieve as an organization, then you need to go about nudging the culture. It, it but it's, it, you know, so that's, I hate the good, the good bad stuff kind of drives me crazy. So instead we went spectrums because change is kind of come to life different, right? So you take the first one to be, uh, let's say, uh, uncertainty avoidance as a spectrum. Some organizations have a very low uncertainty avoidance, a high tolerance of ambiguity. Others have a, uh, the flip side, right? Neither is good nor bad, but they impact how change comes to life. And so we built a body of research that's contained in the ProSci, you know, body of knowledge that says, for each of these six cultural dimensions, individualism, collectivism. What are the challenges of bringing to life change in an individualistic culture? And what are the adaptations you need to make as a change practitioner? Hmm. What about for a collective culture, right? Uh, power distance. Is the organization this high or this high in terms of the orientation of where people think they need to get permission? Um, neither good nor bad, but this organization requires different change tactics than this organization. And yeah. so that's what we've built out in the research is this whole set of, for each of these dimensions, what are the challenges and adaptations you would make depending on where you live in that, uh, in that cultural phenomenon. Culture is going to be really fascinating going forward, I think, because, you know, I've spoke a lot in the last couple of years about the involuntary digital transformation. Mm -hmm. that, that's what happened in March of 2020, right? for all the talk of all the executives, of all the clients you help, right, about uh, digital transformation leading up to March 2020, uh, they were mostly enamored with the technological revolution. Uh, and then all of a sudden we saw the digital transformation happen during this instantaneous work from home experiment. 
Um, the cultural transformation that organizations have in front of them cannot be allowed to be involuntary, right? We, we need to make sure that we step out in front of shaping the organizations that we want to, to live in and be part of as organizations going forward. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it creates that thing that change initiatives oftentimes have historically struggled with, which is that burning platform for change. Like, why do I, if I'm an employee working for you, Tim, why do I need to change? I mean, why do we need to change? Why are you doing this to me? You know, that, that sort of thing. And it sort of takes that conversation off the table and makes it a little less personal and more like this is we're all kind of in this together and we're all trying to figure out how to how to navigate this new post pandemic world. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, just a, a uh, just a couple of comments here. One that's sort of relevant to what we were just talking about, and that is from uh, Malcolm on LinkedIn. Um, so his comment here is that uh, many companies will happily spend money on consultancy and technology. There's a there's part two here, um, but not on education, why and training, how. Um, so I guess that begs a question or maybe I'll sort of spin that into a question that it triggered is so companies are spending all this money on technology because they have to or, you know, it's that involuntary transformation that you're talking about. Um, they spend all this money in many cases, tens of millions of dollars for, for a larger organization, maybe even more for a really big one. So uh, but they're not spending that a lot of them are not spending adequate time and money on the education and the, the overall change management. What it, it sort of goes back to my first question. Why, why is that? I mean, why do you, is it, a, is it a blind spot of executives? They just don't understand anything beyond the soft side of change that you were talking about, or what, what do you think that dynamic is? Yeah. And I think, uh, you're right. And I had to build on Malcolm's comment. The other one that we watch, uh, organizations fall into is we never find the money to spend to do it right the first time. Yeah. But we always find the money to do it the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth time. And so I think a lot of this is around getting smarter with how we're going to implement change and position change in the organization. One of the things we started to do, Eric, back in about 2013, 14, we introduced our ROI of change management, a calculator, a whole frame. But um, I wrote a paper one time. I never published it. I think I should. It's about for human beings to make sense of anything. We need context and contrast. So here's a new idea that I'm trying to help you understand. Context is how does it relate to the stuff around it? Contrast is how is it similar or different to the something I already know? And I think when we talk about the value of change management, we've unfortunately done it in absence of the context of the real value it's going to create. Hmm. And so we started to really work to shift this language to um, I started using the phrase people dependent project ROI. Hmm. What percentage of the project's ROI depends on people adopting and using the solution? It's somewhere between zero and 100%. Um, and one of my biggest pet peeves in the entire world is when people use the word literally incorrectly. But if you want to watch a project leader's gears or a senior leader's gears start to turn, Ask them what percentage of this project's ROI depends on people adopting and using the change. And for our most important, most strategic projects, that number is 75, 80, 85, 90, 95, right? Out of the gate. Mm. And then we can ask the second question, which is what are we investing in driving the adoption and usage of the solution? And often it's we have $500 for mouse pads and coffee mugs. Uh, and so we've created that cognitive dissonance, right? That so much of the value of the change depends on adoption and usage, 
but historically we've not right-sized our investment in supporting the adoption and usage of that change. Um, and I think, Eric, this is, you know, a couple of my fun turns of phrase here uh, that I've played with is getting past the head nod. Mm -hmm. So that's one, right? Because, um, you know, 20 years ago when ProSci was really at the beginning of that change management journey, change management was still kind of the crazies in the corner. We hadn't even got the head nod. But over the last 10, 15 years, you know, things have certainly shifted. And so now you're like, oh, we need some change management on this. And, oh, yeah, yeah, that sounds good. That sounds good. And I need an hour on the agenda. Whoa, 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 whoa. You need an hour of my time? I told you this change management stuff sounded good, right? Uh, and so getting past the head nod is that, you know, it sounds good until, no, you need me to do something different. Uh, and that's where we test. Are we dealing with a passive buy-in? You know, I'm passively bought into change management or active buy-in by that senior leader that they're willing to take the steps and make the investment to support the adoption and usage of the of the change. The other position positional shift that we'll work, here, work at here is, you know, that change management's an investment, not an expense. Yeah. If we see it as an expense line, uh, it gets LIFO'd all the time. And do you have any supply chain background? Yeah, uh, I don't know if the audience does. LIFO is last in, first out. Or it's a way to manage uh, inventory. It's also, unfortunately, what happens to change management on the agenda, on the budget. Mm -hmm. That if we've not anchored our value to the achievement of the project ROI, we're the last on the budget, the first off the budget. Last on the agenda, first off the agenda. Um, but as soon as we start to anchor to the percentage delivery of that, that project ROI, um, that's the position shifter. I, have, I was working with this team, Eric. So uh, a team in an IT, right? IT project team rolling out a big project. We sat down with them and we all did the uh, CMROI calculator. So the change management ROI calculator. We go through and you put in all of the benefits and objectives of the project, how people dependent each one is. You do this big weighting. Uh, out at the end comes the number 62%. So the team collectively arrived at a calculation that 62% of the project ROI depended on adoption and usage. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a betting man, but I would put money on the fact that it's not 62%, right? Fire. Just based purely on statistics, it's more likely 61 or 63 or 60 or 64, or like just a normal distribution. Um, but all of a sudden they had a label, right? They and they began talking about the 62% in meetings. You know, are we do, how are we doing on the 62%? Do we think we're lined up? Are we ready to, you know, do we have that part of the organization moving to make sure we capture this the 62%? They had a label for this concept of the people dependent portion of the project ROI. And it unlocked the conversations, it unlocked mm -hmm. the way that they began to intentionally engage the people in the organization. Because it wasn't just a communication and a training plan anymore. It was what do we do to make sure we capture the 62% of this transformational technology we're rolling out. And so that, you know, that that context shifting, I think, is where we get out of the, well, we don't, is it nice to have, maybe? Um, I also think the pandemic proved that change management is not a nice to have anymore as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, it, it disrupted people's worlds in a way that I think a lot of people can sort of see it and feel it and understand it a little bit better. All right. Thank you, Tim. We're going to take a quick break. I've got a lot more questions for you, as does the audience. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control.
If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here in the middle of a conversation with Tim Creasy from ProSci talking about the future of change management. Let's cut back to the conversation. You know, you, you bring up a really interesting point that I hadn't thought of before, which is that you're you're talking about, you know, hanging your hat or, or being able to latch onto a number like that 65% uh, or whatever the number is for any organization. It's X percent of the business value is tied to people. And I think that's, that's really interesting because I think a lot of organizations struggle with the inverse of that. Um, which is sort of what you were saying before, which is, um, you know, the, 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 the soft nature of change management and that yeah, yeah. a lot of times a, an organization will look at a hard dollar figure like this transformation is going to cost us $10 million. Let's just say we're going to pay $10 million for new technology and a system integrator to implement it. That's a that to them, that's a very real number. But then you start saying, well, and then we're going to spend half a million dollars, a million dollars on change management. Then it's like, well, back to your LIFO point. Um, but or we could cut that million dollars and only spend ten million dollars instead of eleven. But the problem is that ten million dollars is not that's not a real number. That's that's a it's a number, but that number is not going to materialize that way if you don't invest in change management. So that's the other thing too is like it's not <clears throat> value you're trying to get. It's also even more short sighted than that. It's like just that ten million dollars could quickly turn into twenty million dollars if you don't spend that million dollars or whatever the number is on change management. And so it's like it, yeah. I find too you've got to counter that same concept you just described you have to counter that on the cost side of other non-people aspects of the change as well have you seen that absolutely before? oh for sure because you know what the two most costly letters in the project world are what r and e rescope redesign oh. retrain revisit replatform reteam retreat resign right when yeah. we don't think about the adoption and usage component of the solution, when we, because there's always going to be the two sides of the coin. If we only focus on that $10 million technical solution for that digital transformation and leave the people side completely ignored, that's when it turns into a 20 or a 30 or a $40 million project with all kinds of re's mm -hmm. because we've only tended to this side of the coin. And both sides of the coin, we're not investing the $10 million in that that technology to invest in the technology, right? There is a to what end? There is a how are we as an organization going to be different once this technology has been brought to life? And that is what depends on that people side of change, right? Right. The buttons yeah. work. The buttons work. It's whether or not we have become a more collaborative, integrated organization because we brought this technology to life, right? Right, right. Yeah, that's that's very true. Um, and the other one last thing I'll add to that is the other I don't know where it fits into the re concept. I love that. I love that thought, though, because that's absolutely true. Rescope, re redo, you know, redoing stuff costs a lot of money. But it's also like what's what is the go live or the cutover to a new 
future state. What's that going to look like to you? Is it going to be, it's, and it, I guess it's a little bit different nuance from the business value that you were talking about. And this is just more, don't shut down the operations. Don't screw up yep. our time we transition, which a lot of companies do, and they don't quantify that. So if you can so also quantify the risk, like if we can't ship product for a month, what does that look like? What does that do to our financial? And if you put it in that context, a lot of times you, if you, especially if you can tie it back to that 65% or 75% that is, is uh, driven by people, then all of a sudden it becomes very, a lot more tangible to executives to say, well, we don't want that. Yeah. We don't want to shut down operations or not ship product or not be able to close the books. Well, if you don't want to do that, you should probably invest in the people side because that's what's going to uh, mitigate that risk largely. Absolutely. If, if anybody's on LinkedIn and wants to go find, I have a Pulse article called The Costs and Risks of Poor Adoption and Usage. Mm -hmm. uh, and there, it's about a bullet list of about 400 costs and risks if we don't get the adoption usage of the solution we need. Um, and I've turned it into a poster. It's a really cool poster. It's like, and I tell people, I'm like, it's, you know, the font's tiny and it's supposed to be. Because the way you do is you print this out and sit down with a project leader and you say, all right, for this project, are we worried about any of these things? Uh, attrition, unintended negative impact on customer, uh, mm -hmm. the loss of information, loss of you know, active resistance, passive resistance. There's all of those things that are part and parcel to um, the way the people side of change you know, gets executed and, and rolled out. Right. You want to hear one of these uh, recost stories out of my personal life? Yeah. I got a couple of boys. Um, they're building a new park here in Boise a number of years ago. And they put this big splash pad, right? So these splash pads, it's, it's hot here in Boise in the summer. And so there's water that shoots up from this big pad. And the kids run around and get wet and cooled off. Um, and so they build this park, put this huge splash pad in, and they paint it like a big, beautiful star, like a sunburst. Oranges and yellows and reds. I mean, the thing is gorgeous. We show up about a week after the park opening and the water's turned off. Um, and my oldest son, who doesn't mind running through every boundary ever set for him, goes, can I go talk to the guy in charge and find out why? And I'm like, yeah, go for it. Uh, and he meanders up and says, why isn't the water turned on? And the guy goes, well, it turns out the paint we used gets slippery when it gets wet. Oh, So the very first day they turn this thing on and kids are going, doosh, 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 right? because we didn't think about the adoption and usage side of the coin. We painted it with paint. The paint was right. We hadn't thought about the adoption and usage of the solution. And so, especially in the tech space, I talked to folks, right? How often are you building a technical solution that gets slippery when it gets wet? Because you didn't actually go out and figure out when and how and where it was gonna get brought to life. So, um, yeah. That's the sad thing is, I mean, it, that, talk about the recosts here, right? Now they had to scrub this thing and get all the paint off. And to this day, it's probably six, seven years later. It is a big, ugly cement splash pad um, that they had to undo and back out of because they didn't think about adoption and usage um, when they were concocting that solution. So, Yeah, that's super interesting and, and a good, simple, personal case study. of, And, and you think about that on a larger scale, you know, yeah. that employees and the, you know, the, instead of a splash pad, you've got some kind of fancy new system you're putting in front of them, but they can't use it, don't want to use it, doesn't fit what the needs are, whatever the case may be. And you see that all, all the time. Um, here's a quick that I think a lot of people might be interested. It's more of a general question about, um, you've been talking a lot about your research articles you've written. You guys obviously do a lot of research. 
Um, can how can people find that research? Is it do they follow you on LinkedIn or, or do you have a resource hub or something that people can go to to get some of that data? Yeah, um, first place you want to go is prosci.com. Um, there's loads of free uh, information there. There's a whole entire resource center. Um, there is multiple days of webinar recordings. Uh, I actually was building an article, I might release it this week, where I pulled 24 of my favorite webinar replays to build mm -hmm. out essentially a literal professional development day, right? Uh, all, all, and these are all just free webinar replays. There's uh, blogs, thought leadership articles. Uh, that's where you can access the research. Uh, and it's available in ProSize Hub Solution Suite, which is our uh, cloud-based tool platform. It includes tools for executing the methodology, uh, learning tools, but then also all of the research uh, is accessible and lives there too. Great. Uh, and then I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Yeah. So if you want to find me on LinkedIn, that's where you'd want to find me, especially if you want these uh, professional development day of webinars coming in the next week. Yeah. You put out really good content um, and that's, you know, I've been following you for years now. And, and that's why I thought you started ProSci because everything you put yeah. out. Yeah. You, you've got really good stuff. So I, if you're not connected to Tim on LinkedIn, that's where I'm most connected to you. So that seems to be a really good spot to uh, connect with you. All right. Thank you, Tim. We're going to take a quick break. I've got a lot more questions for you, as does the audience. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here in the middle of a conversation with Tim Creasy from ProSci talking about the future of change management. Let's cut back to the conversation. Here's an interesting question. I get this question all the time, and I honestly struggle with this. So I'd be curious to see if maybe you have a better answer than I've, I've had historically, which is what does it mean to spend money on change management? What exactly should firms spend on? Is there a dollar or not a dollar amount, but maybe a percentage of your overall budget or something that you should think about? I mean, how do you how do you quantify that for someone who's looking for more something more tangible than just, um, you know, go spend more? <laughs> Yeah, it's a great question. And there's not kind of a common, uh, I don't think we've standardized on what goes into the change management budget. Um, in the research, uh, there's some pretty good data around what components people typically put into a change management budget. It's often uh, a team member. You know, if it's not someone's job, it's no one's job. So a team member dedicated to uh, driving the adoption and usage of the solution certainly training materials, communication materials, event uh, consultancy is where we actually see the dollars um, getting spent. You know, we see a wide range of investment of kind of percentage of project budget spent in change management. 
Usually the range will come in in the 10 to 20 percentish range, but of course that depends on the nature of the change, the impact, the, the all of those components as well, right? Because I can think of a technology in the technology space. I can think of a huge spend on a technology project that actually has a very small people-dependent project ROI, like a, a, a purely back-end hygiene. We got to spend a lot of money, but there's really two uh, two guys whose job is going to be impacted by this technology hygiene project. So it's a huge technology spend, but there'd be a very tiny percentage that's on change management. Um, I can also envision tons of changes that have very little technical spend, a new values system, right? ProSci, our senior leadership team rolled out a new set of values at the beginning of 2021. There are six words on these six awesome we statements underneath each of them. That was the technical side of the solution, but the people side of that change is all, right? That It's all in behavioral mindset shift, that component. And so I don't think we can, can just pick a number and say what percentage. Uh, it's almost always more than we are already. Right. Um, and off the side of the desk is a dangerous way to resource it. So a uh, couple of thoughts on the resource. Have you ever, have you ever met a executive or project team or an organization in general that said, you know what? You know, we went through the transformation and there were highs and lows or whatever, but I really wish we would have spent a little bit less on change management. We overinvested in change management. We should have spent more time and money on the technology piece. Have you, have you ever heard that in your career? Because I'm waiting to find someone who has. <laughs> yeah, I have never yet come across the, you know what, we overdid it in terms of helping our people be ready and prepared and equipped for this. Yeah, uh, if we would have just spent more on the technical side of the coin and less on the people side, I think, yeah, I've never, ever heard anybody kind of go down that path. And if you combine all the organizations that you and I have touched over 20 years or whatever it's been, I mean, that's a lot of organizations. That's a pretty big sample size, I'd say, to, to, you know, not to say it doesn't exist. Maybe there's someone out there who has overspent. They wish they would have spent less. But I guess the point, the reason I asked that question is you, you deal with organizations that haven't been through the process yet. And it's easy to say, well, change is different here. Yeah, I get it. Everyone else has problems with change. But here, everyone's excited about it. They, they want to get onto this new system. So I don't know why this is such a big deal. Why are we talking about change management? Everyone's on board. Do you get that dynamic as well, where it's sort of a blind spot that you're assuming that because your people are supportive of the project, that they're therefore not going to have problems adopting or adapting to the new changes? Yeah, there's some, I mean, you run into a couple of these different blind spots, right? There's that one. There's the, we've delivered successful change in the past. Why do we need to do it differently this time? Um, I think I can just tell people to do it. Um What I think is interesting, when we've been with organizations that have been on a bit of a journey, you know, at the beginning, it's around bringing structure and intent to the adoption and usage of a particular change, right? So often it's wrapped around that big technology transformation, um, a big major initiative where we realize the people side is critical enough that we're going to do something different this time. Well, what's interesting is that as organizations start to grow the muscle and it becomes repeatable, um, I kind of describe it like safety. You know, you do a big manufacturing firm, then they do a big, huge safety push. And so you get all the policies, the procedures, the methodology, the protocol, the language. You got to get that stuff all embedded because eventually safety is job one, needs to be part of what everybody embraces. Mm -hmm. Similar to change, right? Change is everyone's job. That should be part of the moniker in the organization. But yeah. if we get to the point where change is everyone's job, it doesn't mean that change management goes away. It means it comes to life differently. 
right? It gets manifested, the, the practitioners of change management, the professionals of change management in the organization become more enablers than executors of the practice. They're out there, right? It, it's a shift towards growing change muscle as an organization, mm -hmm. resilience, tenacity, flexibility, durability, where the people side of change is the expectation, not the exception uh, when we step into changes. But that's a long evolutionary journey to get to that point where it's really embedded into the DNA uh, of the organization. Right. And in a sort of a another question from the audience here that sort of uh, piggybacks on that thought, um, and, is, and it's actually too long to uh, include here, but I'll, I'll read the rest of it to you. So it's the behavior and cultural change relies on reinforcements, consequences instead of predecessors and triggers. So the onus falls on leaders and managers to do something different, but it's often overlooked. And the crux of his question um, that didn't show in the, the text box here is, um, how do we flip the script in that failed projects are the fault of management, not end users? And I, I love that question because I think that's yeah. that's a scary question to ask. And, and especially if you're an executive listening, you may not you might not want to hear this question or the answer. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Well, I, we go I go right to the research. Right, this is the very first one uh, from 1998. Um, we asked what was the greatest contributor to successful change. And in this very first study, it was active and visible participation by our senior leaders. And in all 11 of ProSize benchmarking studies, we've identified the number one success factor as active and visible sponsorship by our senior leaders. So um, it's interesting because that's not the script that you had in the chat of the end users are at fault for the failed change. That's not the script that we take to our organizations, to our clients. I mean, we get up in front of a group of senior leaders and say, hey, you all are the number one success factor and the number one obstacle to successful change. Um, your role in sponsoring change is beyond, it's not a title, it's a role and a responsibility. And to kind of go full circle on the pro-size story, this is where we lean back into the research because we built a research basis for what is it that senior leaders need to do to be effective sponsors of change. And out of the research came active and visible participation, build coalitions, communicate directly, what we call the ABCs of sponsorship. So now we go into the organization and say, if you organization wanna be able to outchange the competition, outchange digital transformation, outchange all of the things coming at you, your leaders need to grow the muscle of being great sponsors of change. Mm. which means they step into fulfilling their ABCs each time. When they decide to launch a project, they know it's beyond you know, the funding, signing a check and signing a charter. They know that they're signing a check, signing a charter, and signing up to be active and visible participants, build coalitions and communicate directly. Uh, and that's where this muscle, um, where change management goes, goes beyond a project by project by project discipline and becomes an embedded part of the organizational, uh, how the organization operates. So. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a good, good point. And then, uh, Kelly on LinkedIn has another good point, which is uh, more of a comment than a question, but curious to get your thoughts on if you've, if you've seen this work. Um, but one way to get leadership involved is to set up a governance body with senior leaders and as the change lead require discussion and sometimes training on change leadership, slip it into the governance chartering of the change effort, which I, I'm, I've always been a big believer in this whole Trojan horse approach to change management. I, I almost hate to use that term because it's, it has a negative connotation, but you sort of have to, it's not even that you're, you're, you're uh, misleading people in that way. It's more that you're, you're sort of baking it in the overall DNA of the project rather than saying here, 
as you refer to them, th these are the crazies off in the corner. They're going to be doing all yeah. the change stuff while we do all the real work over here. You got to you got to combine that sort of make it part of the overall team. Have you seen that work effectively, or what? Are some of your thoughts there? Yeah, the analogy that our CEO Scott McAllister uses is that uh, change management should be there to get the best supporting actor award. The nice. best actor award always goes to the project, right? It's it is the in it is the initiative that senior leader put their money into into bringing about. Change management's there to get the best supporting actor award to help you achieve what you already signed up to deliver faster and more completely than you thought you're going to be able to anyways. Uh, and so I think that's really the notion of how do we help our senior leaders realize that investing in change management is an investment in delivering what they already promised to deliver um, by addressing those, again, the biggest detractors of them delivering uh, what they deliver. One of our other favorite clients, it's a state government here in the US. Uh, we had the COO come and speak to a company-wide uh, meeting at ProSci last year. And her analogy that she uses is uh, change management's like the water on the water slide. Like the dynamics of, the, of a slide is that you're going to end up at the bottom. Like this, this, this ERP is going to get rolled out no matter what. But do you want to go down the water slide without water? Or do you want to put some something in there to help uh, ease that, that journey that people are going to be on? So, Right. Right. We also That's have great. clients that'll build, build sponsor contracts. I mean, sit down with a sponsor and the sponsor contract has three parts. Why your role matters, what you can expect from me and what I need from you. Um, but it's really around establishing that expectation up front that change management's not something else. It is what you need senior leader to deliver on the promise of your most important initiatives. Right. Right. Yeah. That's a great, great, uh, sort of a capstone point, which is, you know, how, how do you, how do you bake it into the project and how do you, how do you make it sort of a, not a, not a nice to have, like you mentioned before, not a bunch of crazies off in the corner, but more of a, a core integral part of your, of your uh, overall transformation. All right. Thanks, Tim. Really good conversation. There's a lot we covered there, a lot we didn't cover. I could have easily spent another hour or two asking more questions as, as the audience could as well from, from what I could tell here. Uh, so I thank you for that really engaging conversation and uh, certainly thank you to the audience for all the great questions that you had. And uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Hyla and I are going to talk more about some of these topics we talked about with Tim and build on some of them and uh, unpack some further conversations. So we'll take a quick break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com.
Hello, and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 55. We just had Tim Creasy from ProSci on the show talking about the future of change management and a bunch of other stuff. We had a lot of, a lot of different types of questions related to change management. Really good conversation. I, I enjoyed that a lot. Uh, what did you think about the, the conversation there, Kyler? Oh, yeah. I think I took six pages of notes. <laughs> nice. <laughs> you know, um, what, what an insightful conversation and, um, you know, really normalizing the conversation of how important a human component is within technology. Um, I love his quote, you know, the buttons work, but the people don't. I wrote that down and um, really understanding the root cause behind user adoption and, and understanding what that frontline experience is kind of holistically full circle. And I love that they have this research uh, of, of this discipline of uh, the human component instead of just saying like, you know, it's important to consider how people feel they actually show the impact of the all over ROI if you don't consider how people feel. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot. Actually, there's a lot I learned about ProSci that I didn't know uh, until this conversation and also the prep leading up to today's podcast. I didn't know it was started by an engineer. Um, you know, I didn't realize how much research they do. And, and one thing, I've talked to Tim before, but never at, in that level of detail that we did today. We were you know, we were all over the place. I had a, a bunch of random questions that were sort of all over the place within change and the audience had a lot of different questions. And I love talking to Tim and I love that he can kind of, he can quickly go up kind of strategically up and call it up in the clouds, but he can quickly kind of get down to tangible, pragmatic answers or discussion points and then back up. So that, that takes a rare skill set. And I think it's a uh, probably indicative of partly his personality, but also his job, you know, what he does as chief innovation officer there at ProSize. So it's pretty, pretty fascinating. And, and again, I like it because one of the things that drives me crazy about change management is when people view change as sort of a, a hands-off, like, I'm going to tell you how you need to change, but I'm not actually going to tell you how you need to change. I'm certainly not going to help you through it. I'm just going to give you some high-level guidance and that sort of thing. And I, and I do think there is, a, we didn't talk about it with Tim, but I do think there's a trend in the consulting space where it seems like more, I'm seeing more and more change people that they'll go get the ProSci certification, they'll go learn all this deep uh, subject matter expertise around change management. But then when it comes to the way they advise their clients, it's more of a hands-off advisory role. And I think to be effective in change management, you have to be really hands-on, you have to be pragmatic, you have to roll up your sleeves and understand the operations and the strategy and uh, all the pitfalls and warts within the organization, all that stuff. So I, I found that fascinating for sure. Yeah, it's, it's so funny that you say that because I also wrote down culture is the water in which we are swimming. And so each organization needs their own unique tactics or their, their own unique water on the water slide, right? Yeah. Um, to be able to really incorporate what that means. And I, I like that he wasn't like, um, and we're big Marvel people too. You should see our basement. It's painted Marvel. Um, so when it comes to is not the Thanos or not the, you know, Captain America, I'm like, well, maybe he's like the Doctor Strange, which is like, you know, the mind control stuff right. and, um, you know, that type of thing. So, um, but I digress because it, it really is about identifying, like you said, what is the company culture that that's not the end all be all, you know, that should be a factor within the overall strategies, but that's not going to essentially make or break but you can't do the transformation or implement the technology without the water on the water slide. So I thought that was, you know, a really imp important piece of showing holistically how everything should be grouped together. And if something is off or something is not meeting the exact needs of the business, 
or those cookie cutter approaches that we talk about all the time, that's not going to be effective. It's about that organization, that DNA, and how do we make sure we optimize the strengths and weaknesses of that company? So yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah, that was really interesting. And I, and I, uh, I don't know if I've ever shared this with you. I certainly have never shared it on this podcast, and I usually don't share it in public settings, but uh, I have a uh, terrifying fear of water. I don't know how to swim. I hate the water. So that was the only thing I didn't like about what, what he said was the the water slide because yeah, water slides freak me out. And uh, I'll do it with my kids if I have to, but I, I don't enjoy it. Um, but the reason I bring this up is it, it reminded me, partly because of my fear of water, <laughs> reminded me of this, that I, I wanted to go a different direction in that analogy. But it reminds me of a few episodes ago, we had Jed Hafer on the show, and he was talking about how culture is like the the weather, the weather outside, which I like that one a little bit better just because, again, of my personal fear of water. But it's, it's, they're, they're both good analogies though. You know, like it's, it's the water slide and the way you get down the water slide is it, is it going to hurt your back? Are you going to, there's going to be a lot of friction or are you going to have water that sort of gets you down there faster? Um, and same with the weather analogy, if, you know, is your culture one that's icy, snowy, treacherous conditions, or is it sunny and warm on a beach? And that's sort of like, that's your environment. And then you've got to figure out how you're going to navigate the transformation within it. I also liked how Tim talked about how, um, I really liked how he talked about how culture is not good or bad and it drives him crazy when you say it's a good or bad culture. I totally agree with that. I think you can, you know, every culture has its strengths, the things that support its strategy. And then there's also its warts and the things that undermine its overall strategy that you've got to address, but it's not necessarily a matter of good or bad. It's sort of like, you know, when it's snowing outside, you may not like it. It may not be ideal, but that's the weather and you're going to figure out how to get to work or, you know, wherever you're going based on that. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's so funny that you can see that because I feel like people from Colorado, which Tim is too, um, I went to CSU, so I was up in northern Colorado, Colorado State. Um, I don't like water either. And I always tell people it's because I'm from like a landlocked state. Yeah. We just, we're not, that's not who we are. Like we'll go out in the snow. That's cool. But, you know, the, the water piece of it. Um, and I love the splash pad analogy too, just because obviously I have two young kids that are huge fans of the splash pad. And our splash pad at our park has these treacherous stairs up to this very high cliff that actually has this gate that swings open. And some of my other friends and I will talk about who would ever design a gate that opens onto the side of a cliff for, you know, pre-K kids that are playing in the, the splash pad. So that too reminded me like we didn't think all of this through we didn't think of the end user impact when we built this this structure so i don't know what it is about splash pads that aren't really thinking that through but if you're a splash pad designer out there i i really encourage you to maybe go so, through some some training with tim here and his team <laughs> right there's an opportunity for improvement for sure it sounds like in this whole industry yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love the the everything wrong to, to, um, starts with RE, you know, that redesign, that yeah. rescope, um, that re-engagement. And really, it's so important to be able to tell that to business leaders in that context versus contrast. You know, our ROI depends on that user adoption. So what are we doing as business leaders to invest in that um, user adoption so we don't have to go through those failures of the re's um and i thought that was really well put yeah absolutely it's a good reminder too that he made a comment somewhere in there in that discussion about the re's he was talking about how it's a lot cheaper he said something along the lines of it's cheaper to do things the first just one time versus yeah. 
having to rework and whatnot. And it's, it's a good reminder. It's very true. And it gets back to that point I made about the $10 million uh, budget proposal that a vendor puts in front of you. And it becomes real in your mind because it's on paper and the vendor told me it's going to be $10 million. But if I have to do the rework and the redesign or I have to do things twice and go back and fix stuff, it's going to cost me a lot more than $10 million. So that you have to be careful that you're not too enamored by a number you want to hear or one that you think is, is uh, real uh, when you've got other other things that could drive that cost up or down or whatever. Absolutely. And I even love how some of the um, the our audience were talking about how you can position that cost and risk of low user adoption or end user penetration as almost an insurance. Um, mm. And we, we kind of see that trend right now with COVID-19 and things like travel or something, you know, buying those additional insurance just in case something does happen so that you do mitigate the risks of that type of process. And I think that's just a, a, a great scenario to kind of think about change management like that as it, it is an insurance policy to make sure that your investment is effectively activated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's, uh, again, back to that $10 million example, uh, it's not going to be $10 million if you don't invest in change management effectively. If you don't invest in change management, it's probably going to, you know, potentially double or maybe even more. And so that's the the way to look at it. And, you know, it's on one hand, it's easy to say, well, if I cut X amount of budget or X amount of resources from my change management, that's going to save me time and money. Well, it's actually not. It's going to cost you a lot more to implement if you don't invest in change management. And when you get to the other side of your transformation and you flip the switch on new technologies and processes, you're going to disrupt the operations. And that that uh, impact, people don't talk about very often, but that impact of lost sales, uh, the customer um, uh, the customer service impact, the employee impact, um, not being able to close the books, all that stuff, that's that's hugely costly. And, and most of the time, that's exponentially more than the money you spent on the implementation if you do it wrong. So change management is a way to sort of mitigate all that risk, the initial cost of the deployment, as well as what happens on the other side. Yeah, definitely. And, and right now, with our current landscape of, of just customer tolerance and behavior, you know, if you are in a highly competitive industry, they're not coming back, you know, after they have a bad experience, we have, you know, the, the customer led behavior is going to go to a competitor or a different route to get whatever good and service you want. And with the amplification of, of customer experience on things like the internet, then that's, you know, maybe that's one customer that had the experience, but it's, you know, 200 that heard about it type of thing. Right. Um, yeah. It has a huge rippling effect. Yeah, absolutely. Something I wanted to ask you about, Eric, was um, the sponsor contracts that he talked about. I thought that was a really interesting initiative. So basically having a, a contract, if you will, with that project sponsor or the manager or the leader or whatever to the actual employee to say like, okay, we're going through this change, but this is my commitment to you through this change. Um, and it's not just all about what you do. It's about how we work together as a team. And I thought that was a really interesting way to kind of, uh, or perspective to look at how you can create some accountability and, and you know, security on the, you know, frontline employee side too. Yeah, and, and having that clarity of expectations too is part of that project governance, the project planning, the resourcing all that stuff. And that, you know, it's a good example of things that organizations sort of gloss over. They don't spend a lot of time doing. So that's a, 
good reminder that he talked about that you do need to spend time doing that so that people are all on the same page and they know what it means to affect change. They know what their expectations are or what the expectations are for them during the transformation, either as a, you know, as a project team member, a stakeholder, or a change agent, whatever your role is. Absolutely. And, and really that is failed. Like he said, failure is the fault of the managers, not the end users. And I think that's so important of, of people think you can just flip the switch and these employees or these frontline workers will do whatever you say. Well, well, maybe they will, but it's not essentially their fault if that trickle down strategy isn't activated. Yeah. Yep. Agreed. Well, good stuff. I really hope that you have Tim back at some point. Um, and it was just great, great analogies and, and definitely very articulate and easy to understand why the data behind change management is so important. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It was a great discussion. I would love to have him back on because like I said, we I had a whole list of questions. I might have gotten through half of them. Um, there's probably more that, that than that that I didn't get to. Um, and there's a ton of audience questions we didn't get to just because there's so much that people wanted to know. And they're just, you could tell there's, there's a craving for information and a craving for good guidance on this topic. And like I said, he's a thought leader in the space. He's well known. He's, he's got the name recognition. So it's great to have him on the show and I appreciate him being here. Hopefully we'll, we'll have him back here soon. So, um, well, that's great. And speaking of guests and, and, uh, uh, this, that was our, that was Tim's first time on our podcast, but we're going to have a repeat guest. Uh, here next after a break, we're gonna have Adam Cheatham, who you know very well because you're married to the guy. Uh, he's a, he's a, he's also in addition to being your husband, he's a director of strategy and transformation at Third Stage, and uh, he's gonna be on the show talking about uh, system and technology integration. So a bit of a shift of gears from Tim's change management discussion to Adam's focus on on systems and technologies and integration. So we'll have Adam on the show. We're gonna take a quick break. We'll be right back with more transformation ground control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 55. I'm here with Kyler Cheatham, and uh, you can find new episodes every Wednesday on all the audio podcast platforms as well as YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, we uh, just had Tim Creasy from ProSci on the show. Now we're going to shift gears and talk about systems and technology integration with Adam Cheatham. And this is actually an uh, interview that you did with him, Kyler, uh, for our Digital Stratosphere podcast, our sister podcast. Um, I guess, first of all, I have to ask, how is it interviewing your husband? Is that, is that weird? Is it, is it hard? Does it, do you guys like, does he get yeah. mad at you? The stuff you ask after the fact or before the fact, like what, what's that like? What's the behind the scenes story of a wife? Well, maybe you should, you should interview our very talented and beautiful CFO 
and see yes. how that that goes. Um, no, you know, I've been trying for I've been trying for years yeah. to get her to show up on a video somewhere, and she just will not do it. She's had a couple of cameos if you if you look carefully, like our blooper yeah. video, and yeah. I think there's one other video she shows up in, but she has no more than five seconds of camera time. But this is a little bit different, though. You've got the actual because I don't have that experience with my spouse. I'm just curious yeah. what it's yeah. like. Yeah. No, it's, um, I think we're used to it at this point, but I always, he's much more serious than I am. Um, so he gets in this like persona that like, he has to be like, right to the point. Like I was joking with him because I had on, um, a shirt that actually says it's a, we wore at our wedding and it says just married on the back. So I wanted him to put his on too. Cause I thought like, wouldn't that be so cool? And he just was like, absolutely not. I didn't <laughs> so <it just laughs> trying to be professional that- here. Yeah, the difference of our our personality. I always joke with him when we go into the office. I'm like, okay, do you want me to wait like five minutes? Because he gets like all worried, you know, that he's gonna look unprofessional. I'm like, you you know, we're married, right? Like, it's not. (laughs) We have two kids, so it's that's really funny. I just asked you the other day. uh, You were here with him, and I asked uh, because you had a nanny uh, situation, you know, timing issue with with a meeting we had. And I asked you, did you guys drive together? <laughs> and I didn't mean anything by it. But now that you're telling me the story, I should make sure I ask that more often. Like, oh, you guys drove together? That's weird. Yeah. Even though you're married, yeah. that's still yeah. oh, it's super unprofessional, Adam, that you would drive in with your with your wife. I'll, I'll have to give him a hard time about that. <laughs> yeah, that will get him all like, you know, rustle the feathers. But that's just, you know, Adam's personality. That's why he's great at his job because he is so, you know, matter of fact in analytics. So and I, focused. you know, I, Very I, focused I, on I like, yeah, right. Um, but I enjoyed this conversation with him. It was the 2021 trend series. Um, so he spoke on on integration as that's been a, a main trend um, early earlier in January. Um, and I thought it was a nice pairing with Tim, true, because it just show, showcases the business as a whole and really how it has to function in uh, a, a strategic capacity altogether. Um, and I felt like that was a good pairing with kind of what Tim was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost like this is talking about technology integration, obviously, but Tim was talking about human and organizational integration. That's essentially what change management is often. So it might be a stretch, but I'm trying to help connect the dots there between the the two discussions. (laughs) But uh, well, cool. Let's just cut to the the, uh, interview of you talking to Adam Cheatham about system and technology integration. Let's cut, cut to the interview here. So this month we are talking about all trends of 2022 when it comes to your digital transformation. So today we are gonna talk about integration and kind of unpack a basic definition of integration and then also go into why it is a main trend that we're seeing in 2022. So Adam, can you start by giving us kind of a basic definition of integration and kind of the types of projects it involves? Yeah, so um, an integration is a point between two software systems that don't share the same code. That's the easiest way of describing it. Um, Where we run into integrations in software on the whole is when you have one, uh, a good example at least, is when you have one software provider who supplies one software system that you need and another software provider who provides a different system that you need. Um, and when you need those two systems to talk to each other and share data and information, um, you do that through an integration. So an integration becomes an interface between those two systems that allows them to speak to each other and share data. And are there different types of integration? You had mentioned data right there. Are there other types? Yeah, well, um, 
the way I there are all kinds of different types of integrations, yes, um, and they all they're all defined by what the the method of integration is. But the way I, I think is is most appropriate to think of an integration and the types of integrations that there are are between the two things that you're integrating. Um, so you may integrate two databases, and that's one different type of a, of an integration than having two systems integrate because two databases need to share the same exact fields in, in similar ways so that they can uh, they can act more jointly as a single source of truth and the data becomes just something that tells you tells you a fact about something it's a piece of data a data element um, integrations between systems are a bit more active and the data flows between them as opposed to being a point-to-point -point connection you have more of an interwoven connection where more pieces of information are flowing through that in integration and they're going and uh, typically going in both directions. That makes sense. So is there certain industry types or business types that heavily rely on integrations over others? Um, I'd say that uh, not particularly from a perspective of, of industry, um, but there are certain decisions that you can make along the way that will make you more oriented towards integrations or uh, an integrated best of breed environment or a single um, integrated environment within one system. So the overall goal of a digital transformation should be to have a system or subset of systems that accomplishes all of your business's needs within one environment so we would like those uh, that integration allows for that sharing of an environment where um whereas with the best of breed you find that um you end up with more software packages um and that's okay sometimes you have more more needs in specific areas and that has more to do with the complexities of each each individual business than it does um the the size of the industry so uh, to kind of give you an idea of the way that it looks is you have uh, different tiers of software. Um, you have tier one, tier two, and tier three ERP systems. Um, tier one systems do just about everything under the sun. Uh, these are the Oracle uh, ERP clouds, the SAP S4 HANAs, uh, the Microsoft Dynamics Finance and Operations or Supply Chain and Operations, um, as, I, as I believe they're calling it today. Um, those types of tier one systems, M4M3 is often considered a, a tier one system as well, um, that are made to do everything. Um, they're very large, they're very complex software systems um, that become very expensive and difficult to implement. So the largest, uh, largest and most complex businesses tend to end up in tier one systems, right? As you kind of start to, to get smaller as a business, uh, um, as we move down the, the scale towards smaller business sizes, you have tier two systems um, that are, are, are kind of a, a medium-sized software. Um, they're made to do most things, but allow for some decision-making on, uh, on the whole that is some tier two systems do things better than in certain functional areas than others. Um, these are the net suites of the world Epicor is a tier two system. Um, N4 has some tier two systems. Uh, uh, Cloud Suite Industrial, for example, is, is one of theirs. Uh, Microsoft Business Central, all of these smaller software systems that are a bit less complex in their nature and a little bit simpler to, uh, to implement, but um, have less functionality. So 
if you find that you are um, a, me uh, a medium-sized business that has fairly vanilla needs, you're probably going to get away with everything out of the box in a tier two system for the most part. Um, if you are a the same size company, but you have a very unique set of needs in one particular functional area. Um, I once had, for example, a client who um, had a uh, uh, had radioactive isotopes as part of their in, uh, inventory and tracking the uh, the half-lives of those was a difficult thing for them. That's the type of scenario where you have a complex need that is unique to a particular business that requires some type of uh, additional uh, conversation. Uh, the, with them, the question became, can we get away with a tier two system and some type of a, a, an add-on to manage that inventory, maybe an advanced warehousing system, something like that, or um, do we go with a tier one system that provides more broad and comprehensive coverage? Um, the first example being one that was, is going to require integrations with other products. Um, the second being an example of uh, the same scenario, same company that could end up in a single software system that is more complex and covers those needs more effectively. As you go down to tier three systems, you find more common that um, they focus in a particular area, um, whether it's finance or, um, you know, QuickBooks is a tier three system. They do finance. Uh, Fishbowl is a tier three warehousing system that just focuses on, on warehousing. Those types of activities that now you're a smaller company, maybe you don't have advanced needs in any functional areas except maybe one or two. So you find yourself piecing together your software systems. And every time you have one system and a second system that needs to talk, you have an integration point. So the um, that that smaller company has the option to go best of breed and have a series of integrations or uh, go tier two, which may be more expensive. It may be less expensive, um, but it's going to include a more comprehensive package. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That was a, a very comprehensive answer to my question. Um, and I, I appreciate you kind of taking us through all of those, those tiers. I, we're going to get to best of breed in just a second. Um, my, my last question, just kind of on a basic definition, is how do your clients prepare for an integration project? You know, what are some basic infrastructures? If someone in our listener community is considering this option, what are some things they can do today to make sure that they're going to be successful? That's a great question. And the first, uh, the first thing that you need to do today is understand what your needs are and where you're, where you're at with that. You know, if you're, if you're thinking about a best in breed environment that has a series of integrations, know that those integrations need to be managed. That's one of the, um, and that's an active management thing. That's one of the disadvantages of a best in breed environment um, in that it's, it's a more actively managed thing. So um, as a business, knowing yourself and knowing where it is your needs are so that um, you can balance the thought of taking on extra, um, extra IT hours from a perspective of managing those integrations, that's an important part. Um, the second part is to, to know what systems you're trying to replace um, and, and how many of them you can replace and what, and just as importantly, which software systems are going to stay. Um, no matter how, whether you buy a, a tier one system that does everything or a, a tier two system or a tier three system that allows you to be more targeted in your functional areas, 
Um, it's not common that one system replaces all existing systems. So some things that are gonna to need to stay in place, um, as you know what needs to stay in place, that should tell you how it is you need to be integrated. So that's the second thing that you need to understand is what stays and what goes, so you know where your integration points are. Uh, the third thing that I would suggest you start looking at is how, uh, how clean is your data um, and, and how good have you been about maintaining it and keeping it healthy. Um, if you pass bad data in through an integration, you're going to scramble everything that, that, that happens within the system. All those workflows are going to be more or less worthless until your data flows through them accurately. So getting your data cleaned up and knowing where that's at is, is uh, from a health perspective is another important piece. And then the last thing from an integration perspective of what a client who's considering this type of a path used to do is just understand that integrations aren't a bad thing, they're just a thing. Um, you know, uh, there aren't very many ERP software systems, for example, that do sales tax calculations. And there aren't very many ERP systems that do payroll calculations. It's just is that way. Um, so if you're thinking about upgrading uh, software systems to something that doesn't do sales tax calculations, but your system does that today, you just added an integration point um, with a software like maybe an Avalara or something like that. Um, and the same holds true for um, payroll and HR type of packages like uh, ADP, for example. Excellent. I think that makes a, a lot of sense to kind of back up and really identify what your needs are as an organization. Um, and then potentially, you know, move forward and understanding those really important integration points. All right. Thanks, Kyler and Adam. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll continue the conversation and continue the clip. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 55. I'm here playing a clip with Adam Cheatham and Kyler Cheatham talking about system and technology integration. So let's cut back to the conversation. So Adam, it seems like we're seeing a shift in clients going from a more core ERP comprehensive system to actually looking at evaluating and, and a lot of times implementing a best of breed option. So can you just basically explain why that might be um, some shifting within our overall scope here as a digital transformation industry? Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic question, and the, um, I think that the first three things that come to mind for me are um, from a trending perspective um, that needs to be talked about. The first is the the ways that integrations are managed, um, especially as the move towards the the cloud is a, um, continues to grow. 
um, and software as a service platforms continue to grow. So integrations in those types of spaces is one important key factor to, to talk about and I'll elaborate on, on that in a minute. Um, the next is the maturity of the, the frontline ERP packages. Um, you know, 10 years ago, uh, the top three tier one systems were fairly mature in their space. And so all of the things that could be developed had mostly been developed over time. It takes time, the same way it takes time to fill a house, it takes time to fill a software package with functionality. And what, uh, what we're doing in the industry these days is we're seeing the old SAP ECC6 has given way to SAP S4 HANA, which is, um, has been in the, in the market for, I think it's about eight years now, which is not very long for a software system especially when you consider that sometimes SAP takes five years to implement, right? So the first person to implement on that may still have only been live for three years. Um, Oracle is moving away from the enterprise business suite platform um, towards ERP cloud. And uh, Microsoft is moving away from the, the Microsoft Dynamics AX uh, platform of the old days to a Microsoft Dynamics 365 platform. And all of these are being moved to the cloud. Um, that's a, um, think of it as they're all moving into new houses and now they're filling those new houses with things, um, those things being functionality uh, within these new software packages. So that's the second thing that's important to think about when we think uh, we talk about integrations. And now I'm drawing a blank on what my third was going to be. So give me just a second. There's a platform as a service, the integrations themselves. Oh, and the third thing that, um, that, is, is driving a lot of that is as uh, as our clients find they have more specialized needs in one way or another, particularly as the e-commerce um, movement that has been inspired by COVID continues to roll. Um, you find some clients that want a very specific, more niche system that, that might not be ERP, it might be an MES, manufacturing execution system, a CRM, uh, an advanced warehousing system. And they want to just replace that piece of their business to get more digital, and that requires an integration point. So, um, on the first first of those, I, I, should I keep going, or, or do you want to go through them one at a time and ask about them? Um, I was just going to ask, kind of, that it, there seems to be a call for flexibility within mm -hmm. software. So you can continue on your answer there, or if you want to move on to the next question, you just let me know for your train okay. of thought. Can you talk to me about the, uh, or ask me about the different ways in, in ways that integrations are um, being pre present, uh, the integration options that are available in the marketplace today as, it, um, as the market shifts towards uh, platforms as a service? Okay. Are you ready to finish that last question? Yes. We can just cut yes. it at your last one. Yep. That's really fascinating, Adam. And so, so what are the different types of integrations for, say, software as a service options? Yeah. So, um, in the past, when we have, you know, the 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 way of going to things was an on-premise set of servers that your IT department managed. Your IT department wrote the code that goes between that that connects two systems. So they wrote the integrations themselves. Um, you know, you hear them referred to as APIs or anything like that. Um, where the, the general nature of it is it's a custom coded um, translation between two systems and that, that that integration is something that continues to need to be managed. 
and that management of that integration is on your IT team because you built it and you know you maintain it. Um, what we're starting to see a shift towards is what's called an integration platform as a service. Um, what this is uh, is a a, um, a third party provider who creates a, uh, an integration between between two well-known systems that um, that provider then manages. So that service that they're providing you includes the integration between two systems. Um, a good example of this is uh, the integration between integrations between NetSuite and Shopify. Um, that's typically handled by a, a third-party provider. Um, often somebody called Celigo is a good example of one of those where Celigo owns uh, um, proprietary software services that translate between Shopify and NetSuite. So what happens with that is you buy NetSuite, you buy Shopify, and you buy the Celigo integration platform as a service, and you pay a monthly fee for that. And Celigo is responsible for now maintaining the connection between those two systems and making sure that they talk to each other appropriately. So as, as we see that shift towards the cloud um, and software as a service, we're also seeing a growth in the integration platforms as a service um, on the whole. So it has some benefits in that you don't have to manage that integration. It's always um, always handled by somebody else. Um, it can become pricey. So knowing the connectivity of these systems are really pivotal, obviously, to be able to garner insights and actual data. Do you think that this integration kind of multi-system infrastructure is a main theme that will continue for businesses? Or do you feel like we'll go back to more of an ERP, not as complex system of all kinds of systems talking to each other after we say maybe over integrate our um, software systems? Yeah, so I, um, that's a uh, uh, that's a great question. And I'd say that both of those things are going to happen. Um, yeah. In my opinion, you're always going to have the needs of the, you know, the more niche-based needs that drive a best-of-breed scenario, whether or not comprehensive functionality in one system is, is available. Um, what that means is that there will always be businesses that have specialized needs and functions, um, where buying one smaller niche package to integrate with your existing ERP is a better business decision than buying a whole brand new ERP on, ERP on the whole. Um, taking small bites is usually the best way to do this. You know, as, as you start to grow as an organization, if your core ERP is working, but you have a new specialized need, maybe you've taken on a new business unit or a new line of business, a new product line or something like that, um, it may make more sense. And for a lot of companies, it always will to add a new, a smaller new system. Um, and those integrations that come with it. So those that piecemeal functionality in that third example I gave earlier, that leads to more of a, um, a piecing together of different functions, uh, starts to become a, an option for, for some of those clients that haven't grown into the full blown next tier of, of, of enterprise software. Um, but on the flip side, the second example I gave of why integrations are, are trending right now um, it's just that those top tier systems, they're not comprehensive yet. Um, they're, they're about as comprehensive as they can be right now. But what happens is you have a, a software system that somebody builds, an SAPS 400 or Oracle ERP Cloud or something like that. And 
then and that software package is launched. Um, it's launched with fairly comprehensive functionality, but as it's implemented at new places, um, new code is written into it. I have a new client that, that needs this specific function out of this tier one ERP. So we're going to build that. And now that, now that that's been built, that becomes code that's accessible and functionality that's accessible to new clients, right? So as I have clients that have new needs that haven't been built in the software, and I decide as a, an ERP provider to add that functionality to the software, the comprehensiveness of my software package grows. This is how the EBS is, the ECC6 is, uh, the Dynamics um, AX packages got to become comprehensive. It's not like they were launched and then remained static for the 20 years that they were live and available. They continued to grow as the, the systems of, uh, of today will continue to do. SAP S4HANA will continue to grow its functionality and continue to become comp more comprehensive. Same with Oracle ERP Cloud, same with Microsoft, Epicor, Infor, even down the, in the tier twos. Those software packages will become more comprehensive. And as they do that, the need to integrate other tools with them to fill gaps will be, will be reduced by the fact that those have been newly coded into those systems. So we'll see it kind of go in both directions. But from what I see in the marketplace, um, that's going to take some time. It's, it takes decades to get to that full-fledged functionality um, based on enough clients needing that one piece of functionality to make it worth pulling into the core flagship product. Gotcha. And and um, so how I'm curious how software vendors feel about the sale maybe of a best of breed system versus a core ERP and then the integration and the relationship to that. Can you give us some insight? Yeah. So um, the software vendors are, are usually more worried about selling their own software. And if, if having an integrated product that's strong helps them do that, then they're usually willing to do it. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, when we release RFPs to, uh, to software vendors, um, we don't, we, we coach our clients through the expectation that it's probably going to be more than one product that's suggested. Uh, there may be some add-ons in there that we'll continue to scope and keep an eye on. Um, and determine whether what the level of need is for on those. So as um, as we see that that space grow, I, I don't see it as um, those ERP providers seeing the third party boltons in the best of breed scenario as um, necessarily competitive in a negative way. Um, a lot of times it helps them sell their software um, to, to folks that they wouldn't otherwise if, if it, they didn't have the advantage of uh, um, a third-party partner that they can integrate with. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. And um, I know, you know, most of our conversation here has been about kind of the technical side of integration. I wondered, and just like stay with me here, if, if integration could kind of be somewhat of a metaphor for a company culture of collaboration, because I would assume that it takes additional kind of cross-cultural or cross-dynamic department communication to make sure that these integrations are being successful. Is that something that, that you kind of see with that? Yeah, I'd, I'd say that... Um... You know, you could apply that analogy to integrations for sure, because you got to know which system passes what data to another and how they interact to each other. And because they're usually different functions, 
Um, it does involve two business units trying to figure out how to make those two systems play well together. Um, I would say that that is a um, that collaborative need internally on, on that from a business perspective isn't isolated to the idea of integrations. I'd okay. say that it should be, it should be uh, you're, you should be collaborating across business units um, as you think about process improvements that may reduce the need for integrations, um, as well as uh, change management tactics that lead us to um, hopefully discover whether or not we need an integration or not. Um, and those, those types of uh, conversations that collaboratively help you make decisions, uh, good, strong decisions as an organization. Um, but when you're talking, when you know you're gonna have two systems and you know you need to integrate the two of them, having both ends of those uh, business units um, talk about the process holistically and how it is the, the, uh, the two or three or five or however many integrated systems need to act, um, it's important to include all of the impact stakeholders. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today and providing some insight on this really um, interesting trend. You'll be talking more at Digital Stratosphere about some other business intelligence and some 2022 trends. Um, can you give us a little preview of, of some of the things you'll be speaking about? Well, um, that's a fantastic question, and I can give you a little preview, but I'm not going to tell you too much. But we're going <laughs> to a teaser, um, if you will. So, I um, we'll be talking a little bit about what technology means for your business. I think is the easiest way of putting it. I mean, we'll cover all of the topics that are important to that conversation, and what is digital transformation? How do you become successful in it? Uh, we'll talk about integrations. We'll talk about the, the market as it pertains to the global nature of it, um, whether it's you know the difference between markets in um, the US, UK, Australia, and Africa, where we have offices in each of those locations, or some of the other differences in markets, which, um, and maybe Latin America and Asia as well. We'll also talk about what it means to have a best of breed scenario versus an ERP-centric uh, you know, single system scenario. So um, lots of really strong content um, it is all complimentary, uh, tons and tons of learning opportunities for, for our guests. So we're looking forward to having um, as many people as, uh, as may benefit from it. All right. Thank you, Adam and Kyler. Great conversation. A lot to unpack there. So we're going to take a quick break and when we come back with more Transformation Ground Control, we'll talk about and build on some of the topics we covered here in that video. If you're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com.
Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 55. We just had a great episode or a great discussion here with Tyler and Adam talking about system and technology integration. What were your thoughts on that uh, discussion uh, after you after you recorded that for our other uh, podcast, Digital Stratosphere? What were your some of your takeaways from that conversation, Kyler? Yeah, I think um, I always think things are easier on the actual implementation side than they actually are. Um, so these these sort of conversations and like, oh, isn't it so great that you can have the best of the best supply chain management system and the best of the best CRM and really look at all of these different systems. And then you can just flip a switch and, and integrate them. And this conversation was a, a big learning experience of like, that's not how that works exactly. Like that is possible, but just all of the logistics, you know, the data management, the data has to match or it doesn't mean anything in going through the integration of these systems. And that sometimes though that sounds like a really Cinderella story approach, it's not as easily said than done um, in like you select a best of breed system and then all of a sudden you can have it integrated with the rest of your business. Um, so it's just kind of a reminder that there's a lot more that goes into that when you are evaluating kind of what your software and strategy will look like in considering integration um, and those best of breed type of models. Well, if it's any consolation, a lot of our clients have that same blind spot or challenge. They think it's going to be a lot easier. Um, and this, you know, keep in mind, you know, this whole topic that you were talking about is, is technology integration. And that's, it's not easy, but it's, it's easier than process or people, unpredictable process and people components of a transformation. So if you assume that the technology piece is the easier of the people process technology pieces, and even that is more difficult than most expect, you can, you can only imagine what the people and process changes and the difficulties must be. Absolutely. And I, I learned that a lot of times if the processes don't match, that's an issue too when it comes to integration. So that's another consideration when you are going through that um, overall transformation is just understanding what kind of the end strategy or the end user is going to experience when implementing an integration. That needs to be considered, as Adam stated, before you decide, hey, I'm just going to buy a best of breed um, you know, HCM system, and then we'll figure out how to connect it to all of our other systems later. Well, no, that should be considered upfront in those requirements. And I, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's part of that, um, sort of blueprinting process. You know, you, you kind of lay out what the overall, uh, technology blueprint's going to be, how everything's going to tie together, what that architecture is. Same with the business processes. You want that blueprint laid out. And then also the organizational design and the culture and the, the future state people side of things. So that all that combined is sort of your overall architecture, if you will, for the entire organization, what it's going to look like going forward. So it's all it's all really important. Yeah. And, I, and Adam was talking about kind of that pain point of explaining that to clients Like we need to still map out every one of your your processes in order to help you evaluate the most effective technology. And the funny the ironic part is at when I was scheduling him for a podcast, I wanted him to talk about open source systems and he openly refused <laughs> for that very nature is a lot of times clients come to him and like, you could do all of these different things with these different modules. And he's like, that's true, but you need to consider what type of business decision resources support that you need for that 
overall decision making. It doesn't matter the software. If you don't know what your processes are or what your data looks like, you could buy any software you want, but it's not going to work the way that you want it to. Yeah, I've, I found with with Adam that, uh, you know, one of his triggers is, op- is open source, as he mentioned. I, I find that if I just ask him like, hey, what, you, what are your thoughts on open source? Or I'll, I'll pick a client that uh, has no business deploying any sort of open source technology. It's not at all a fit, but I'll, I'll ask him just a kid with him. Like, hey, what do you think about open source for that client? And I know it's going to be a trigger for him. So uh, it's it's always a, a fun a fun uh, bantering we have around that. Yeah, definitely. But you know what? A, a valid point is his his job and our team's job is to advise for what's best for the business. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, I assume, and you would know better than I, but you know these these fancier terms like integration and and you know open source and and flexibility in systems though we do know that that kind of seems like a, a trend that the industry is headed in, that doesn't mean that that's what's best for the, the business processes you have today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what what's a good fit for one organization might be a terrible fit for another. So having sort of a one-size-fits-all generic answer is always uh, risky at best. Yeah, and it, it always is kind of a good reminder to our audience community or any organization that's going through or considering going through a digital transformation. Like there is homework, pre-work, if you will, to do on, on your side, which third stage can certainly help with, but it is a, 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 main, um, a main failure point if you don't understand your data, if you don't understand your future state. If you don't, you know, really lay out your your target operating model and and really have that visibility to what that's going to look like, then it doesn't really matter the software you select or the strategies you implement, because it you don't understand what what you have today or what you want tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Excellent. Well, you know, he he always enjoys being on the podcast. Not really. No, he doesn't. <laughs> he prefers his day job, which is good for our clients. Um, but uh, it was good to, to kind of talk to him about that. And just a reminder for our sister podcast, um, we do have a 2022 trend series that I did with a, a variety of our experts, of whether we were talking about data management, small business solutions, um, target operating models, we did one on two. So please head over there and, and subscribe if you'd like some smaller, more short form uh, type of podcast episodes. Yeah. And you can find that digital stratosphere, the, the shorter form podcast episodes, you can find that on the third stage YouTube channel. And you can also find it by, by just searching digital stratosphere or Kyler or my name on whatever audio podcast platform you're listening, you'll find it there as well as this podcast. If you're not already listening on uh, one of the audio podcast platforms, you can check it out here. Uh, or you can check it out by searching for uh, ground transformation ground control. Uh, also, be sure to follow us on social media too. If you follow our our LinkedIn accounts, our uh, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, all that stuff, um, you'll find lots of good content we put out every day, as well as our website with new blogs and white papers and articles and all that good stuff. So, be sure to check all that out. If you just can't wait till the next episode, which will be a week from today on a Wednesday of next week, we'll have our next episode. But if you can't wait that long, be sure to check out all these other sources we're uh, sharing with you here. So. I want to thank you for your time, Kyler, and thanks to the audience for their great questions and engagement here in today's episode, as well as our two guests, Adam Cheatham and Tim Creasy from ProSci. Thanks for being here. Thanks to those two guests, and I'm sure we'll have them both on at some point in the future. So hope everyone has a great week, and uh, we'll see you next week on the next episode of Transformation Ground Control. Have a great day and a great week ahead in the meantime. Take care. (laughs) 